Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the STEMcast podcast. The goal of our podcast is to create an accessible resource for students at all levels of STEM to be mentored by leading professionals and advance their careers. Your hosts for today's podcast are Derek and myself, Nathan. Today we're very excited to bring in a very special guest, Dr. Hakeem, who we will learn a bit more about over the course of this podcast. Um, so let's just start off with a brief introduction about yourself. For example, your background, your job title, and where you work. So I am at the University of Ottawa. I am uh, a neurologist and a neuroscientist. Uh, no, both of these things are now emeritus because I'm not actively in the laboratory and I'm not actively seeing patients. But I am um, hired by the University of Ottawa to be part of the Brain and Mind Research Institute. Give them advice on how to go forward and what might work and what might not work. So you, I think it's fair to say that you had somewhat of an unconventional path. So can you talk to us a little bit about your journey from the tar sands of Alberta to the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame? Yeah, I guess really the message in my career, which as you said, has really had a number of detours in them, is that uh, all of it was a process of self-discovery. Um, and I would really recommend strongly, rather than do what I did, which is to finally settle down and get your first job when you're 40 some years old, to really explore who you are, what your interests are, what are your skills, what is it, what is it that turns you on, what is it that gives you joy? Is it when you have in your room solved a differential equation and you don't care about anybody noticing or knowing about it, or is it when you stand up and give a talk and everybody claps at the end? What are your interests? What are your skill sets? What is it that you, that you do well? And so in the process of self-discovery, you will have a better idea of perhaps what field of medicine or science you would like to follow. It took me a long time to get to that point. What I knew um, vividly was when I was doing something that I wasn't enjoying. And eventually, eventually it came to the point of me saying, you know what, Tony, you, you really like to, to be helpful to people. You really like to be with people. So being a, a chemist, which is what I started by being, working in a corner of a big lab wasn't my thing. When I went to the tar sands, being isolated in Fort McMurray, or being in a corner of Syncrut, Canada, um, breaking down tar sands into byproducts, wasn't really what was turning me on. Um, and, and eventually, through many detours, I decided to do, to come closer to medicine, if you wish, without abandoning my engineering background. So I chose to do biomedical engineering. And in the process of doing biomedical engineering as a PhD, I had to take courses with medical students. Um, so I took some biochemistry, I took some physiology, and guess what? The professor of biochemistry comes up to me and says, you're a biomedical engineer. I said, yeah, I'm sitting in a class of eventual physicians, right, medical students. He says to me, well, you seem to really enjoy this biochemistry stuff and physiology. I said, you have no idea how much fun I'm having doing this. So he says to me, have you ever thought of becoming a physician? I thought, geez, you know, what, what is he saying? He said, listen, you go think about it. 
And if you're interested in going to medical school, we'll take you. Now, you know, <laughs> yeah, how often would you hear that these days? You know, apply to medical school. You seem to be interested. If you apply, we'll take you. So um, I thought about it a lot. It was yet another detour in my career path, but I decided, yes, that was what I wanted to do. I applied, I got taken. And then eventually I became very interested in brain function. Um, my PhD thesis was a combination of brain and differential equations, which was very interesting. Um, and uh, then I went to do neurology at the Montreal Neurological Institute. Uh, in the process, met a lovely lady who was also a physician, and uh, we can talk about that. Um, and so um, here I was at the Montreal Neurological Institute, finished my neurology training. They said, would you, would you join the staff? I said, yes. So he said, you're an engineer. I said, yes. He said, why don't you become the director of the Brain Imaging Center at the Montreal Neurological Institute? <clears throat> So that's what gave me the tools to actually study what happens in the brains of people, human beings who have suffered a stroke in the early phase and then the middle phase and then the late phase. So that's my career in a nutshell. A lot of detours, but you know, the message I guess of my career is life is what happens to you while you're planning it. Um, if uh, if it's suddenly a door opens for you that you never thought of, and it looks like, yes, something that fits with your personality and your interest, take it. No, I completely agree. I think this is a common theme we've seen across a lot of our guests in terms of what we think to be an unconventional path uh, is now really like can be seen to be as conventional as a lot of people. They obviously uh, don't find their passion, my first um, spot or destination that they hit. So obviously it's definitely a process and something that a lesson I think all our listeners can take from. Um, in that um, brief um, history, you were talking to us a bit about how um, you got yourself um, delved into the field of stroke research. So was there a reason that you went to stroke research and um, other than the other areas of um, neurology? Yeah, so when you're a neurologist, you get to see stroke patients, although they actually were never admitted to the Montreal Neurological Institute. They went to the Royal Victoria Hospital and other hospitals. But here was the thing about stroke. Number one, it's a very frequent event. There is a Canadian who suffers a stroke every 10 minutes across this country. That's a major problem. Out of the blue sky comes lightning. And so when you're sitting there, you have no idea, all of a sudden you're handicapped. If I had a dollar for every patient who got a stroke and thought I should go to bed and see if I can sleep this off, um, you know, I'd be a very rich person. So the, the, the problem was that we really didn't understand stroke. Just at about the time when I was finishing my residency, we began to see what was going on in the brain because we had these imaging techniques and other ways of studying. And here was the, the big thing. Number one, most strokes were caused by a blood clot that goes up into the brain and prevents the brain from getting its blood supply. But when you then got into the brain and looked at it, it turns out that when that event happens, there isn't just one process. There is basically two processes. Think of it as an earthquake. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the center where blood supply is very reduced, 
those cells are going to die immediately. Around that, there may be a very large area that is getting just enough blood to survive, but not enough blood to function. So it is alive, but it is, it is not working and it's producing symptoms. So all of a sudden people said, well, wait a minute, what if I was able to give, to, to bust this clot, what would happen? Well, that penumbra region would get its blood supply back and all of a sudden you would recover some deficits that you had acquired, which was an amazing new concept that you could perhaps treat strokes. Everybody went to work across the world to find a clot buster. And we were successful. There was a drug called TPA, yeah. tissue plasminogen activator, which busted clots. All of a sudden, the patient who had a facial droop and a weak arm and speech trouble recovered the speech and recovered the face, but the arm remained weak or some combination thereof. So it became very important to give back blood supply to the brain. Okay, a drug called TPA was invented. Two years later, are you ready? Yeah. Only 2% of stroke patients in Canada were getting the drug. Oh my God. Why? Well, those, the, the answer to the question why was, was exactly why we built the Canadian Stroke Network and obtained partners for every step of the why. Let's, so number one, we should be very proud that Canada had something called Networks of Centers of Excellence. And uh, Networks of Centers of Excellence allowed someone like Tony Hakim to go and get partners in other cities in the country who were equally upset by the fact that only 2% of stroke patients got, got the a drug and also wanted to reorganize. So um, we were successful in obtaining the funding and we started looking for partners. What was, it, what was it we were trying to do? Number one, we wanted to spread the word across the population of how you recognize the symptoms of stroke. So uh, it was called, the Heart and Stroke Foundation partnered with us and it was called FAST, F for face, if the face is drooping on one side. A for arms, are the arms, when you ask the patient who you think is having a stroke to hold their arms up, is one arm going down and the other arm. So that's another indication of a stroke. S is speech. Um, you know, do they understand what you're saying? Is their speech un understandable to you? And if you have F, A, and S, T was time. Why? Because the penumbra's ability to survive was very time limited. And this drug, TPA, had to be given very rapidly. Otherwise, if you waited till the following day, forget it. You're not going to do the patient any good. So all of a sudden, the paradigm of how we needed to take care of stroke patients changed. Prior to this, a patient would come to the emergency room and they would wait their turn to be seen by the emergency room physician after the twisted ankle and whatever else, because there was nothing you could do for them. All of a sudden, there was something you could do for them if the patient recognized their symptoms through our partnership with the Heart and Stroke Foundation and called the ambulance, the paramedic 
had never before hurried up to pick up a stroke patients, all of a sudden had to turn on their sirens and their lights and go pick a stroke patient. The stroke patient had to get taken to the right emergency room. What is the right emergency room? It's an emergency room that is equipped with a CT scan and has a neurologist on call. Well, not all hospitals had these things. And so we started getting phone calls saying, Dr. Hakim, are you kidding? We've taken care of stroke patients for hundreds of years and you're now saying we are out of that picture. And the answer is yes. So we were getting a lot of partners. At the same time, we were pissing a lot of people off. And, but, but that was absolutely necessary. So we were successful in getting patients to recognize their symptoms, getting uh, uh, paramedics to come and pick them up in a hurry, take them to the appropriate emergency room, uh, and then have a, an emergentologist take care of them, get the CT scan. And now all of a sudden, neurologists who up to that point would, would say, okay, I'll see the patient tomorrow morning, had to get their butts out of bed and go into the emergency room. I can tell you, I made lots of enemies in the process. The outcome, the, the result was that very rapidly within the life of the Canadian Stroke Network, the maximum number of stroke patients were getting treatment in the appropriate period of time. And it became known across the world as the Canadian model for stroke care. Hey, how proud can we be, right? Of course. Just a quick question. You, you're, you're talking about TPA. So like a few years ago, like I think two years ago, I read a paper regarding it and um, it said TPA, like you said, had to be registered in like three to six hours. Was there, like you were talking about, like, is there a reason why it's that specific time? Has that been like experimentally determined or is there? Yeah, the, the, the length of time was experimentally determined. As we said, the penumbra did not live forever, right? The penumbra eventually died. Think of it as a part of the brain that was holding its breath. It couldn't, it was alive, but not doing well, and eventually packed it in. And so TPA had to be given, ideally, within a couple of hours, even less than that, if possible. And so uh, the steps where the patient recognizing the symptoms, uh, ambulance arriving rapidly, being taken to the right emergency room. Listen, here is one of the things we discovered, right? That ambulances are hired and paid for by the municipality. And they were told you can only take the patient to a hospital within your municipality. So if right across the border, there was a hospital in a different municipality that could take care of that patient, you weren't allowed to go there. You had to drive several hours potentially to take them to a hospital within. So we had to meet with municipal leaders and get them to change that rule. Again, this was not a simple thing to do. So there were barriers all along the path. But eventually, as I say, we became recognized across the world for the Canadian model. And I guess part of that you become recognized, um, like how specifically, um, like what was your mindset when you brought these like um, these strategies that you apply to these uh, organizations to life and how you implemented those specific strategies? Like what was the... Well, it, it, you know, I became convinced that my body was going to be found floating in the Ottawa River. I just didn't know who the hell was going to do it. Um, but, but, you know, if you're convinced, if you're absolutely determined, uh, 
then people will come along with you and will join you because it makes them feel good also. What you're saying to them is, we are here to work with you to save brains. And, you know, they're excited about it. So, for instance, we established best practice guidelines that said when the ambulance is called, it should get immediately to work. When the patient arrives to the emergency room, within two minutes, they should be seen by, you know, don't park them in a corner and forget about it. Within X minutes, they should get their CT scans. Within X minutes, they should get their TPA if they haven't had a hemorrhage, um, because that was the reason why a CT scan was absolutely essential. You didn't give TPA if the patient had suffered a bleed in their heads. That obviously would be the wrong thing to do. And, and so all along that path, we had friends and we had concerns. For instance, when we established these stroke guidelines, did a small town in Saskatchewan follow them? Did a small town in, in uh, other provinces in the Maritimes follow them? One of the things that became very clear, for instance, in Newfoundland, which was a rich province, they were able to buy CT scans and put them in these remote locations, but they didn't have anybody who could read them. So we connected those CT scans as part of the Canadian Stroke Network, connected those CT scans with, you know, places where there was a radiologist who could read them. And it was a simple matter of saying, okay, yes, go ahead and give them TPA and a nurse could give them TPA. So we connected the country and brought people together. Um, we hired nurses and put them in emergency rooms across the country to collect the data, right? What happens to stroke patients? And we did a report of how diverse was the approach to stroke patients across the country. And your buddy here took the report and went and met with deputy ministers of health and said, your province is not doing the right thing. And he said, well, when is this report going to show up publicly? And I said, because I'm a manipulative bastard, I said, it's, it's going to show up in six months, giving them an opportunity to fix their problem so that when the report comes out, they would say, oh, that's old data. You know, we fixed that problem, that, that, which was fine by me, so long as they did the right thing. So, you know, there you go. Okay, so let's go, let, let's just trail back a little bit to earlier to our conversation, how you said how um, you kind of pursued this interdisciplinary approach to your um, medical approach. How important do you think it is for the next generation of physicians slash researchers to pursue a similar interdisciplinary um, study route? It's a very important question, but it's really the answer is not to be given by Dr. Hakim, but to be given by the individual concern. We said, get to discover yourself first get to find out what it is that turns you on, what it is that makes you feel good, what it is that makes you want to go home and blow your horn about it, uh, you know. So once you know that, if that requires that you obtain multidisciplinary training, fine, let's go do it. If you're somebody who, you know, wants to make lots of money, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but, but maybe the kind of career that I suggested or I followed is not the best way to do it. You're more interested in developing patents and, you know, submitting them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, it's very important to 
get to know yourself in all of this. And then from that, deter and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to tell you that it took me 40 years to get to know myself because I didn't do the kind of homework that I'm suggesting each one of your colleagues should do first. Mm. Um, and I guess that um, is also connected. Um, do you have any other, for example, lessons that you learned through your uh, career path that you would share with ambitious young people listening to the podcast? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, th there are just, I actually wrote some of them down and I can tell you. Um, it, it's, it's very important to uh, follow your heart. Be an opportunist, but at the same time, follow your heart. Don't be afraid to make professional detours if it feels right. Uh, life, as I said at the beginning, is what happens to you while you're planning it. So, you know, be, be listening and be looking be questioning yourself. Am I okay doing this? Am I missing something? You know, if, if I did this for the next 40 years of my life, am I going to be a happy person retiring? These are important questions that you, that above all, you, you need to find peace in your heart and whatever profession you're doing. So that's really my answer to the question. It's first of all, get to know yourself. And then from that design your process, it, took me a lot of, if you wish, wrong doors to get into to and be inside a, a wrong room uh, to, to discover that this isn't what I wanted to do. So that's what I hope um, the younger generation, each individual could avoid, is to just waste time. Not that I wasted time, but be in areas of, of career that do not really respond to who you are yeah um and like given i guess you've learned a lot of things um as you just mentioned you've learned a lot of things about yourself and kind of about um your career field by going through it um looking back on all of that what would you say you're most proud of um boy i mean listen how much more proud can anyone be if you and your colleagues, I was surrounded by equally determined and equally committed people from across the country. How, what more than converting a stroke from a dismal event that suddenly handicapped a person and their wife or their husband suddenly had to stop work to take care of them. And I can go on, you know, a stroke event didn't just happen to an individual, it happened to an environment, it happened to a family, and it happened every 10 minutes across the country. You converted that into a treatable condition. What more do I need to be proud of? But at the same time, um, you know, it was not a straight line. It was a, a very complex path, and it isn't Tony Hakim alone who did it. It was a whole group of committed people who worked very hard. So, you know, because I was the director of the Canadian Stroke Network, I get a lot of pats on the back and a lot of kudos. But let me tell you, I was surrounded by a lot of very committed people. And so, again, surround yourself by the right people if you're going to go forward in directions like I did. Yeah, without a doubt, I think seeing physicians as yourself and seeing the impact you guys are leaving behind, um, not only on the healthcare um, scene, uh, but just the world in general, 
um, has influenced many, many, um, not only undergraduates considering um, medicine as a future career, but um, other students entering STEM. Yeah. The other thing that happened, because we decided that stroke patients were treatable, it also became, okay, so now we're, we understand that it's a blood clot. How could we reduce that risk? So, so stroke became preventable and we developed prevention clinics to which patients came with all of the risk factors that eventually gave them strokes. So stroke went from being a dismal condition to being preventable, treatable, and also now repairable to the, to, in, to the extent that sometimes the acute therapy is not available. We're now learning a lot about how the brain replaces the lost functions slowly by um, forcing other centers in the brain to take up the job of allowing you to speak, allowing you to walk, allowing you to use your arms. So it, the future of stroke is the acceleration of the process of recovery. Yeah, without doubt, like with neuroplasticity and all these new things, just looking at like in 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, wow, um, look at the progress we made. So like, absolutely. absolutely. We're now stimulating different regions of the brain. We're, we're doing it non-invasively. We're, uh, you know, we're getting the arm to talk to the brain and vice versa. And I can, I can go on and on, but yes, that is the, the so, so look, I mean, uh, from, 2000 to 220, we walked a very long path, but saved a lot of brains in the process. Saved the, saved the, the Canadian economy a hell of a lot of money um, by doing this. And the other thing that has happened to me is that when you damage part of the brain through a stroke process, you bring on dementia. Mm -hmm. You bring on memory difficulty. And I became very interested in what else can cause dementia, which is a big problem. What else can cause me to lose my memory function? So gradually we learned that certain lifestyles, and this is very important for young people, certain lifestyles are conducive to dementia. And the script for dementia gets written at your age group, even though the brain is so in at very early stages, the brain is enduring changes that will eventually translate into dementia. So dementia prevention is something that starts at your age group, not when memory trouble starts. So we've talked a lot about that and I have some podcasts that I have done on terms of the, the seven rules to avoid dementia. Uh, and so I think that's becoming also the next sort of stroke care uh, issue that we need to solve. Yeah. So honestly, uh, Dr. Rikim, I could run this podcast for hours with you. Um, but I think uh, these are the, all the questions we prepared for you today. And um, we want to, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very, very busy day um, to support our podcast as well as your audience. Um, I'm very, very proud to have done this with you. And I'm very grateful uh, that you selected me. Thank you. So as, those, uh, as, as for those of you at home, we hope that you enjoyed this episode and learned a little more with Dr. Vicky. We hope to see you in two weeks for our next episode. Have a great day, everyone.